We have been looking at the ordinances of the church the last couple of weeks, or last week, I should say. We looked at the Lord's Supper as we celebrated the Lord's Supper together. This morning, we are going to look at the other ordinance of the New Testament church, which is baptism. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read the first 12 verses. This is the account of John the Baptist as he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. So in Matthew chapter 3, let's start reading at verse 1. It says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, And his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him to Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. And were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance." And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Indeed, I baptize you with the water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We're going to stop there for now. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we will look at this message that God has given us today. Our Lord God in heaven, again, we come before you, and we just ask now, as we look into your word, that you would use it to accomplish your purpose. You have told us that your word does not return unto you void, so it will challenge us as your spirit uses it to convict us, to impress upon us the truth, to help us to understand what you want us to understand, and to learn the lessons of the Christian life as we study together. Lord, we just ask that your spirit would do his work now in us, that we would yield to him And that we would quench not the spirit as Paul's commanded us. But let us see with eyes the the things that you have for us today. And Lord, now I pray that you would use me and fill me with your spirit. I pray that you would give me boldness in word and speech. But fill my mouth with your words and your truth. So that we might be challenged by you with your word. And so Lord, we want you to be exalted. We want to hear from you today. And we want to glorify you in all that we do and say now. And so use this time for your good and to to make us more in the image of Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we have been studying, or last week we studied the, um, the Lord's Supper as the first ordinance of the New Testament church. We're winding up our series on the New Testament church in looking at the ordinances. And this morning we come to the second ordinance of baptism. Now, I have to be honest, in my lifetime, I haven't heard a lot of messages preached on on baptism specifically. 
I've grown up in churches. I've been in churches my entire life. It's not a topic that you hear very often. But I think it's important for us to understand what the Bible teaches about it and what Christ says about it so that we have the right perspective and the right understanding of what it is, how it should be done, and why we should do it. Okay, so we're going to start right from the beginning this morning and just start answering these questions. And the first one is, what is baptism? And very simply, you could define it like this. It's a ceremony by which a person is immersed, dunked, or submerged into water. That's it. Okay, baptism. Now, we could all go home now and we all be fine, right? But we want to look into God's word a little bit more to get some more substance behind that. Okay, so... Aside from us understanding that it's a ceremony that we perform in church when someone is dunked under the water, I want us to understand what that means, what it symbolizes, where it all comes from. So we're going to start by defining this word baptism. It is not an English word per se. It comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which is transliterated into English baptize or baptism, okay? There are two words in Scripture in the New Testament that are used for this word baptize. The first one is bapto. It's kind of a mild word if you want to look at it that way. And it's used four times, and in all the cases, it's basically talking about to dip something into a liquid, like dyeing cloth. You would dip the cloth into a dye to color the cloth. That's the word bapto. The other word is baptizo. That is a more formal, a more forceful Word, And it has emphasis in it. And baptizo means to submerge, to put into, totally into. Okay, so it's got this idea of being immersed, usually in water, is the men, many times the case. Okay, so you have these two words, bapto and bapt, baptizo, which basically tell us the same definition. It means to put something into or submerge it all the way under something. Now, we use the word baptism, that's our formal noun of the, of the verb baptize, and scripture refers to it many times as well and uses it in this idea of being submerged underwater. Okay? Now, I want you to understand this as well. The, word, the verbs here, bapto and baptizo, are never used in the passive tense. Now, that might not make any difference to you, but... As you study scripture, it should make a difference when you understand what that means. The passive tense means that um, it is never said to be baptized onto someone. In other words, the water is not being picked up and put on someone. That's the passive tense. The active tense is that someone is put into it. That is the word baptize. So it's not used in a passive sense of the water being applied to someone else. It is someone is being applied or dunked, immersed, under the water. So when you look at the word baptism in the Bible, it always means an immersing or a submerging or dunking underwater. And if you want a couple illustrations, um, we read this morning in Matthew chapter 3, and I want to point you to verse 16, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we will. This is talking about Jesus' baptism. And it says, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway out of the water. The word in Greek means up out of or away from. So that means he was in the water already and came up out of the water. Um, The the same phrase is used in Acts chapter 8 when uh, Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is talking to him. He's trying to explain Isaiah. 
And the, the Ethiopian eunuch says, well, you know, I believe that. I believe that's Christ. And he says, well, what hinders me from being baptized? Here's water. And so it says they go down into the water, and then they come up out of the water. So there's some examples here, even in the language in Scripture, that's talking about going down into, okay? And that's the word baptize. It means to submerge. So biblically, when you use this word baptism, it can't really include sprinkling or pouring because that's the passive tense. And the Bible doesn't ever use a passive tense of the word, all right? So when we see, what we see in Scripture is that when any physical baptism is talked about, it means that someone goes into the water deep enough that they can put, be put all the way under. That's this word baptism. Now, there's other types of baptism that are talked about in the Bible. I don't have time to explain them. Maybe we'll do those next week. Um, but we're focusing today on the baptism of water, this ordinance of the New Testament church. There's other baptisms the Bible talks about, and one is the baptism of the Spirit when we are baptized into Christ. Okay, that's different than the physical baptism of water. There's also, we just read in Matthew chapter 5, um, John the Baptist speaks of the baptism of fire. Okay, that is obviously also not baptism of water. But again, we'll take some time, maybe next time, and look at those specific references so we can get a good, clear picture of what this idea of baptism is. But today, we're focusing on the physical baptism in water as an ordinance of the New Testament church. So we get to this question, what is the purpose of baptism? And as all other things that we see in the Bible um, that seem to be kind of a ritual or an ordinance or a ceremony that God has given us, they are object lessons. Baptism is an object lesson. It is a physical representation of a very important spiritual reality. And God uses symbols and pictures. He uses parables and analogies all through Scripture to teach spiritual truths. So we have this picture that God has given us of baptism to be an object lesson. And all of these object lessons teach us something that is a deeper truth beyond what we actually see happening. Okay? Here's some examples. For instance, in the Old Testament, there's a ton of them in the Old Testament. If you read through um, the law of God, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Old Testament, all of those ceremonies, all of those feasts, all of the rituals of the worship that the Jews performed in the temple were a picture of something else. All of those things in the Old Testament were pointing to Christ, who was the promised Messiah. And in fact, he was the picture and, or the, the reality that fulfilled all of those pictures that were represented in these ceremonies. For instance, the Passover, when God told Israel to celebrate the Passover every year, it was a picture of remembrance for them to look back on God delivering them from Egypt. But it was also a picture of looking forward to the deliverance, the spiritual deliverance that Christ would bring as the Savior who died on the cross to save them from sin. So there's a dual picture in the Passover. In fact, Christ was sacrificed on the Passover. Okay? He was the final sacrificial lamb, that perfect lamb, that fulfilled all of the sacrifices up to that point. So there's a picture in the Passover. Circumcision was a huge thing for the Israelites. It marked them as people of God. And yet circumcision itself was nothing more than a picture. It was to help them learn something about themselves that within our flesh 
we are sinful. And we have a need to have, in a sense, the flesh stripped away so that we can become holy. Okay, you read all through the New Testament about that very principle. And God gave Israel a picture of that in circumcision. Um, The animal sacrifices, again, and in the worship of the temple. The picture was that the awful penalty of sin was this bloody uh, penalty. Death had to happen, and it was a very vivid picture. Imagine, for instance, if you were a child, and your parents took you to the very first time you ever saw these animal sacrifices being done. It was a gruesome sight to behold. And the kids, as a child, you might say, well, you know, why do we need to do this? This is awful. And then the message that comes out of it or the picture is sin deserves a very serious penalty. And this is the penalty that we deserve to die. And so God has given us a substitute in these animals so that they will die in our place in this temporary uh, substitution, looking forward again to when Christ would become the permanent substitution in his final sacrifice on the cross. So everything that God gave Israel was a picture looking forward to something better, and that something better was Jesus Christ. It all is fulfilled in him. Now, in the New Testament, those things have been fulfilled because Christ has come. He's already died. He's gone back to heaven. He's fulfilled all of those pictures in the, New, in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God gives us two pictures in the New Testament church. The first one is the Lord's Supper. It is a picture of the death and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. The bread signifies the body, his body that was broken for us. The juice signifies his blood that was spilled on the cross. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And we've talked about this. We talked about it last week. And we are reminded every time that we partake of the death that Christ went through and the sacrifice that he gave for us so that we could be saved. And that is our picture to remember what Christ did for us. And then he gives us baptism also as a picture. And baptism is a picture of when we come to Christ, we are literally dying, going down in the grave, dying to ourselves and our old lives, and being raised to life in him. It is a picture of Christ's death and resurrection, but it's now applied personally to us. We are dying to self and being raised in Christ. And that's what we symbolize, or that's what we see in this symbol of baptism. So the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are both pictures, object lessons that God has given us to remind us over and over and over, every time we see it and every time we partake of these things, of Christ's death and resurrection and what he's given us because of that and what he's called us to in the new life that we have in him. Okay? So that's the purpose. It is a reminder. It's a picture, an object lesson for us. And we have to answer the question then, what is the meaning of it? And I think to really understand the meaning, I'm going to give you some history behind it. And I know not everybody likes history, but I hope this is interesting because it fills in the gaps as far as, well, why do we do it the way we do it? You know, I understand there's different ways to be done, but why do we do it the way we do it? It goes all the way back, actually, into the Old Testament. Baptism was not something new in the New Testament. Baptism goes back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, basically, you have the story of God's intervention and God's interaction with his chosen people, Israel. The Old Testament is basically a history of Israel once you get to Exodus, okay? 
Genesis tells about the creation, about God's interaction with man, his destruction through the flood, his raising up uh, of Noah and his sons, and then the, uh, the lineage that comes out of him, and then Abraham. And Abraham becomes the central figure in the, the latter parts of Genesis. And when you get to Exodus, we have the beginning of the Israelites, in a sense. So the Old Testament is all about Israel. It's God's chosen people. And they were promised in both the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant certain blessings that they would have from God. The Abrahamic covenant, those blessings were unconditional. But in the Mosaic covenant, there were conditional blessings that depended upon their obedience. But as other nations looked at God's interaction with Israel and looked at the blessings and the protection and the provision that he provided for them, they started to believe. Now, not all of them. There were a few. And so you have people from outside of the Jewish nation, the Hebrews, that believed in God. And they would come in and want to be part of this congregation of Israel. They were called proselytes. Okay? And this started as early as when they came out of Egypt. They had people who were not Jews who came with them into the wilderness and, and went through all of the things that Israel went through. But in order for a Gentile, that would be a non-Jew, in order for a Gentile to become a proselyte, he would have to go through a three-phase process that kind of initiated him or inaugurated him into the congregation of the Jews. It did not make him a Jew, it just inaugurated him into the congregation of the Jews. They still were restricted from certain types of worship in the tabernacle. They were restricted to uh, staying in different places outside of the camp of Israel when they, when they stopped and camped in the wilderness. But these three stages were important for someone to identify with the Jews. Okay, The first stage was called Milah, and in this was basically circumcision. This was a mark that God had given Israel that showed that they were dedicated to God. Okay, And again, it's that picture of a stripping away of the flesh where sin resides so that God can make us holy. That was the first stage. The second stage was called tabula, and this was basically baptism. They were immersed all the way under the water for a ritual cleansing. And basically what it signified for a Gentile in the Old Testament was, I want to be part of God's people, God's chosen people, the Israelites, and so I am renouncing my former associations, my former accomplishments, my former life as a Gentile, everything I used to be, I am putting behind me, and I'm dying to it. And I now give my allegiance to the God of Israel. I will worship no other gods. I will follow no other gods. The God of Israel will become my God. That's what this baptism or this uh, tabula meant. It was a, a cleansing and so in doing this, they were literally walking away from their old lives. They were many times just forsaken by their families because they've abandoned their life, and now they're following God. The third phase was called korban, and this was the animal sacrifice. And again, it was an acknowledgment of their sin and that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness or remission of their sin. So they would go through these three phases, the milah, the circumcision, the tabula, baptism, and then the animal sacrifice, the korban. And then after they completed those things, they would be welcomed in as part of the congregation. Okay, So Israel, 
was not unfamiliar with this idea of baptism. It was part of not necessarily their worship, but part of bringing someone from outside into their fold. When you get to Matthew chapter 3, we see John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is baptizing people, which in itself was not necessarily that unusual, except his message was different, because he wasn't preaching to Gentiles to repent, because the kingdom is at hand, he was preaching to Jews. And so here is a Jew who is preaching to Jews, telling Jews, you need to be baptized to be brought into the kingdom of God. Now, as a Jew, think about that, how that would come across to you as you lived your entire life and you have an entire history behind you of being God's chosen people. He is our God. Why in the world would I need to be baptized as a Jew to be brought into God's people or God's kingdom? That's why John was so controversial. Because his message of repentance was to Jews. And he's preaching repentance to Jews who think they have nothing to repent about. Because they're already part of God's fold. Now, John is considered one of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus had not died yet and risen, so we don't have the church age. We don't have the New Testament. Remember when Jesus partook of the Lord's Supper with his disciples, the Last Supper. He said, this is my blood of the New Testament. There's a New Testament that he's established there at his death. So John the Baptist was part of the Old Testament prophets. If you want to compare him to somebody, he's probably much like Elijah to these people. In fact, many people thought he was Elijah, kind of reincarnated and coming back to earth. But his message is, repent to the Jews. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament prophets, what's the message of the Old Testament prophets? Repent, because the Jews had abandoned God. They had abandoned the true worship of God. They had gone after idols. They had gone after a prosperity gospel. They had gone after doing things their own way. They had perverted the worship of God. They perverted the priesthood. And so the prophets are here now saying, you need to repent. You need to come back to God. Now, the difference was John the Baptist now is saying, in order to show that repentance, you need to be baptized. Because baptism to the Jews was someone outside the fold renouncing their former life, coming into the kingdom of God. And there were many As we read this morning in Matthew chapter 3, there were many that were coming and realizing that their lives were not what God prescribed as holy. And they had not followed God. And there were a lot of people, a lot of Jews being baptized by John the Baptist in repentance. They They realized their sin. Okay? So when John the Baptist is baptizing people for the repentance or remission of sins... The Jews are the main target here. Christ's ministry on earth, his message, was specifically to the Jews. Now, he did interact and talk and give the message of the gospel to some Gentiles, but he primarily focused on his own people, the Jews. And so John the Baptist was not kind of averse or out of touch here. He was doing exactly what God had called him to do in bringing this message of repentance to the Jews. 
Now, if you were the leadership of the Jews, you could see why you wouldn't like John the Baptist. Because the worship that was happening at the time of Christ in the temple was so corrupted that it wasn't worship anymore. In fact, on two occasions, Christ goes in the temple and he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers because basically everybody's there just to make a profit. That's what they saw going to church as. They weren't worshiping God at all. And on several occasions, Christ, as well as John the Baptist, as we saw today, condemned the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, or the the, the leaders, religious leaders of the Jews, for their hypocrisy, for their corruption, and for their sin. In fact, as we read this morning in Matthew chapter 3, there are some Pharisees and Sadducees that come to John the Baptist, and... In verse 7, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. He wouldn't baptize them. Now here we have people, Jewish leaders, coming to John to be baptized, and he's going, No, I'm not baptizing you. Because your lives, everything about you shows that there isn't repentance, that you don't care what God says, and you're going to do things your own way for your own good. And so John refused to baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees because of their hypocrisy. So this is where we are when we, when we read Matthew chapter 3 in the history of Israel. John is proclaiming this message of repentance. He's baptizing truly repentant people to bring them into the kingdom of God through repentance from their old lives. And he's refusing to baptize those people who are outwardly religious but inward As he says, they're full of lies and hypocrisy. Okay? So when we get to Christ, and we get to the end of Christ's ministry, when he commands his disciples to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that's the Great Commission, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They had witnessed John's ministry. They knew the history of Israel and what baptism meant. And so that brings us to this point of Christ in the time of Christ when we have these baptisms now by John for repentance, but then in the early church, people were saved and were baptized. Now, I want to put this in perspective for you and what it meant in the early church for someone to be baptized. The reason that baptism was so important is because The majority of the early church, especially the church at Jerusalem, were Jewish. All right? When we see right away at the day of Pentecost, okay, those 120 people that received the Holy Spirit, they were all Jews. The 3,000 that were converted right after Pentecost, most of them were Jews, and they were added to the church. But it says 3,000 were saved. They were added to the church. They were baptized. Okay? So as we, hear, as we are here at the time of Christ, or after the time of Christ in the early church, baptism became important. And here's what it meant for those people, okay? Remember, the Sanhedrin, the, Jew, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are absolutely against not just John the Baptist, he's dead by now, but Christ, who has died, has been put to death by them, and then rose from the dead, but they could not admit that, or at least they didn't want to admit that because it would destroy their entire religious foundation and their leadership. So the Sanhedrin was obsessed with seeking out those who followed Christ and persecuting them with prison, with beating, or with death. 
Now, many of the apostles suffered at the hands of the Sanhedrin and were delivered to the Romans to be crucified or killed by the Sanhedrin. So it was the Jewish leadership that was behind much of the persecution of the early church. Okay? I want you to understand that. So when a Jewish person became a follower of Christ, the Jewish religion was very staunch in that you did not defect from it. The Pharisees were very adamant about that. If you went against their rules, against their religion, you were ostracized. Look at their treatment of Paul the Apostle. Okay? So when a Jewish person became a follower of Christ, they were ostracized from their family and friends. And eventually... They were put out of the synagogue, which was their place of worship, and basically treated as a traitor to their family and their spiritual heritage. They were looked at as traitors. That's how the Jewish community treated the believers in the early church. Now, if you look at history, the believers in the early church continued to go to the synagogue for a while until they were banned from it. Because they worshipped the same God as the Jews, they read the same scripture as the Jews, they followed the same law in a sense, the spirit of the law as the Jews, but they didn't have to follow all the pharisaical rules anymore, and that obviously caused an uproar. And they accepted Christ as the Messiah. That was the big point that was the difference, because the, the Jewish religion did not accept Christ as the Messiah. So when a Jew came to Christ in the early church, baptism, this public picture of dying to my old life, which was Judaism, and being raised in a new life in Christ, that was considered treason. Okay? You're a traitor because you've abandoned the true God, the true religion to follow this false messiah. And when Christ said, people, you should baptize those who are believers, he was weeding out those who were just fakes and spies from true believers. Now, when you look at the early church, the depth and the intensity of the persecution of the early church was something that we could not imagine today. Okay? I don't even want to go into some of the things that they had to go through. Because it, it was unbelievable how much they suffered. But they took that stand for Christ no matter what it cost them. That's what baptism signified. They were dying to that old self. As they went under the water, they were being raised in Christ to a brand new life. And so in the early church, baptism was a very serious thing that demonstrated an absolute commitment to the Lord regardless of what it cost me. That was the statement that was being made when a person was baptized. So it was a physical demonstration that they were willing to take up their cross for Christ. And in some of their cases, it literally was they took up their cross and were crucified on it as Christ was. They died for their faith. And they knew that was a very good possibility because at baptism, they were marked as a follower of Christ. Very plainly. And I think we've lost the seriousness of baptism in the modern church because for us, it's, especially in America, it's so easy to be a Christian, you know? You say a prayer, yeah, I receive Jesus, I go to church, it's easy. 
I mean, we really have not seen persecution at all. We talk about some of the restrictions that are put on churches across our country, and we go, oh, the persecution is so bad. No, go back to the early church and look what they endured. We have nothing to talk about here. And the question in baptism was, are you willing to stand up and admit in public that you are truly a follower of Christ if it will cost you everything, including your life? And baptism was a statement adamantly, yes, I will follow Christ even to the death. So if we understand how the early church perceived baptism, we get a better sense of what it symbolizes and its importance in, as we follow Christ. Now, the meaning of baptism is found in its symbolism. And just as we saw with the proselytes of the Jews as they were baptized, renouncing their former life, it's the same picture for us as believers. That's what baptism symbolizes. It's a physical demonstration and a representation of our commitment to follow Christ above all else. I'm dying to my former life. I am dying to myself, to serving myself, to to living for my causes, for my gain, for my prosperity, for my benefit. I'm dying to all of that. That's my old life. And when we come up out of the water, we are being raised. It's a resurrection or a picture of the resurrection that we now are being brought back to life in Jesus Christ. We have no life of our own. Now we only live in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20 when he said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not my life anymore. It's the only life that I have in Jesus Christ. That's all I can live now at this point. And so that's what baptism signifies. And that coming up out of the water symbolizes us being reborn or resurrected into that new life which can only be found in Jesus Christ. So it's a public confession of Christ to the world. That's what baptism is, a public testimony or confession that I am a follower of Christ. Whatever it costs me, I will stay true to that confession. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul says that if thou shalt confess, we read this this morning in our our, uh, responsive reading, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, we look at that verse And we read that verse, and we're probably familiar with that verse, and we obviously agree with that verse because it's God's word, but why is it so important to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus? That's what the verse says. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I thought salvation was by faith alone. Well, it is. But remember who Paul's writing to. Early persecuted Christians, especially in Rome, they're they're seeing a lot of the worst persecution in Rome. In fact, they were completely driven out of Rome eventually. But Paul says, if you can't confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, then your faith is not real. You are saved by faith, but confession is that demonstration of that faith. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him also will I confess before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Now, I want to take you back to a story you probably have heard. 
just before the crucifixion of Jesus, when Jesus is being tried by the chief priests, Peter is kind of lurking in the background. Remember? He follows Christ to the trial, but he doesn't really make himself known. He's kind of hanging around in the background. And when he's confronted and asked, aren't you one of those guys that followed Christ? What happened? What did Peter do? Denied him. Nope, nope, got the wrong guy. And three times he was challenged. Nope, you got the wrong guy. I am not one. And the final time it says he swore, he took an oath that he was not a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a great picture of someone who calls themselves a Christian but will just kind of ignore baptism. Okay? Because God has told us we are to confess Christ. That is our public a very public confession of our dying to ourself, that we will follow him. So one who does not want to be baptized as a believer, and I'm not saying they're not saved, it's kind of like Peter, hanging around in the background. I really don't want to be associated with him through this public humiliation is what it comes down to. And when we go before Christ at the end of time, when we stand before him, And the Lord looks at us with those same eyes that he looked at Peter when Peter went out and wept bitterly. How will we feel? I could not take a public stand for Christ. I could not confess him through this action of baptism. It doesn't mean we're not saved, but it really brings into question the sincerity of our faith. If we're truly a follower of Christ, Christ says, You should have no problem telling people, and the first way to do that is by being publicly baptized. It's a public testimony. I'm dying to myself. I'm going to live for Christ. Now, baptism, then, is that physical representation of a spiritual change that has taken place in us as believers. It's not just adding Christ to our lives when we're saved. We don't say, yeah, you know what, I need some sense of religion. I need some God in my life. Salvation is saying, no, I renounce my life. I renounce what I want. I give it all up to accept whatever God has for me. That's faith. Okay? Baptism shows that. And so we're literally living a new life in Christ that can only be found in and sustained by Jesus Christ as a believer. That's what being a Christian is all about. And and baptism becomes a public testimony of that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, if our lives are found in him, we are new creatures. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. There's the picture of baptism. Okay? So baptism doesn't save us. Baptism doesn't make us holy. Baptism doesn't even cleanse us from sin. Baptism is a step of obedience in our commitment to follow Christ that demonstrates the spiritual change that God has wrought in us. That we have given up trying to fight him and have our own way, and now we submit to his authority in our lives. It's a public testimony before the world that our life is now all about Christ and not about me anymore. Now, when we look at that idea of baptism... It should mean something to us as believers. It did for the early church. But that's what we're saying as we're baptized as a believer. 
We are living for Christ. Now let me throw a wrench in the works here, okay? Go back to Matthew chapter 3 for just a minute. Because I want to give you this scenario because... What we read is John baptizing in the Jordan. He's baptizing all of these people coming out to him. They were Jews. He refuses to baptize the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Look at verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So in the middle of all of this baptizing that John is doing, and he's refused to baptize Pharisees and Sadducees, he's baptizing people who are truly repentant, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walks up. And the verse 13 says at the end, that last phrase, to be baptized of him. In the Greek, that means that was Christ's purpose for being there. That's why he went to see John that day, was so that he could be baptized. Okay? Why would Jesus need to be baptized? He had no sin to renounce. He had no sin to repent of. He had no former life that he needed to be cleansed from. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Now, I've heard and read a lot of explanations. Some of them are good. Okay, some of them are bad. Let me give you the bad ones that are absolutely wrong and unbiblical. Some say that Jesus was not truly God until the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. He was just a human before that. That's wrong. Okay, I, I, we could look at scripture. I'm not going to take the time to do that, but it's wrong. Some say that Jesus did not really know who he was until he heard the voice of God proclaiming, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then it was like, it dawned on him, oh yeah, I'm the son of God. Uh, That's wrong as well, okay? Jesus had his divinity. He knew exactly who he was from the time he entered this earth until the time he died. And he still knows who he is. There's not a point at which Jesus had no idea who he was. Some will even say that Jesus was not really perfectly sinless in his life before this and that he needed to repent just like everybody else. Obviously, that's wrong. Now, these are not just cuckoo ideas that somebody thought up. The last one that I just read about Jesus actually having sin is taken from a writing back in the early centuries of the church called the Gospel of the Hebrews, and it actually says this, that Jesus came to John and said, well, I don't really think I need to be baptized because I don't have any sin, but, you know, maybe in just saying that I don't have any sin, I just made a mistake, and so I need to be baptized anyway. That's unbiblical, okay? That's why we need to be careful about what we accept as Scripture or as uh, inspired by God. So those are all of these that I've given you so far are wrong and unbiblical. Now, here's some valid explanations. They fit with the rest of Scripture. Some say that Jesus was baptized in order to identify himself as a man for whom he would become the perfect representative in dying for their sin. That's true, and I'll show you that in a second. He was identifying himself with sinners in his baptism. Others say that it was at his baptism that he was anointed by God as the Christ, the anointed one. That's his title, not just his name, 
His title is Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. So he, at his baptism, that was kind of God's anointing when the Holy Spirit came down upon him as a dove. And out of heaven came God's voice and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay? That's also a a valid explanation. Another answer to this question is that Jesus was prefiguring or foreshadowing the death that he was going to die. Obviously, that's true. He was being buried in the water, being raised again to show these people a picture of what was going to happen in his life. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining all of these. I want to look at what Jesus actually said was the reason that he got baptized. Because we know that one has to be true. So if you go down to verse 15, Paul is for, or Paul, I'm sorry, John the Baptist is forbidding to baptize him. He's saying, no, I need to be baptized of you. And what does Jesus say in verse 15? He says, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. The reason Christ was baptized according to him was so that he would fulfill all of God's righteousness. In the scripture, when we study God's righteousness, it means perfect and without sin. Hadn't Christ already done that? Yes. The Bible says he was without sin. He became sin for us who knew no sin. Okay? So isn't he already righteous? Why would he need this baptism to fulfill God's righteousness? What he was saying is that as a human, himself as a human, and as a perfect representative of all humans, in order to be the perfect sacrifice for all humans, their representative, he would have to fulfill all that God had commanded them. He fulfilled all the law. And so he's saying, I have to fulfill every command of God. Everything that God has intended for us to do, I have to fulfill on this earth as a human being. The righteousness of God could only be fulfilled through perfect obedience in every way. And so what Jesus is saying is that baptism is part of God's command and expectation as a requirement for perfect righteousness. And therefore, he must do it to be in perfect obedience. It's not that he needed it to be cleansed from sin or to show repentance because he had no sin, but he had to do it. It was necessary for him to do this to be in perfect obedience to God. That's what he answered. Let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So if baptism was not God's plan and purpose as part of true righteousness, then John the Baptist's message was wrong. Because John the Baptist's message was what? Repent and be baptized. That was his message from God. I mean, that was the substance of his message. The baptism was not something John made up. It was commanded of him by God to preach. And so Jesus is actually confirming the message of John the Baptist here in saying this is required by God for perfect obedience. Now, God's righteousness obviously is fulfilled through perfect obedience in life, but there's a problem because not all of us are perfect. Obviously, everyone except Christ has sinned. Part of God's righteousness includes his justice. 
and his justice demands that sin be paid for. And so when Jesus went down into the water in baptism, again, he was showing a picture of the death that he would pay for the sins of all mankind, thus not just fulfilling God's righteousness in his life, but fulfilling all of God's righteousness in his death. And that's why it's a picture of dying. Because it was in his death that Jesus completely fulfilled the righteousness of God in giving us or in giving God the payment for our sin that we could not pay. And so the fulfillment of righteousness is in Jesus' life in perfect obedience and in his death in paying for our sins. And God's righteousness is totally fulfilled then. There's nothing left for us to do except trust Christ and follow him. Jesus did it all. So Jesus gave us perfect righteousness, which we could inherit through him because of his life and death and resurrection as our Savior. So Christ's baptism is a perfect picture of everything about Christ. His perfect obedience to God, his submission to the death on the cross, and the picture of his resurrection coming up out of the grave not cleansing his own sins, but eliminating all the sins of everybody who ever lived on the earth from the beginning of time until the end of time. Christ paid for it all. So why should we be baptized as believers? Because it's commanded by God. In Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, we're probably all familiar with that. It says, go ye therefore, this is Christ, one of the last things he said before he ascended up into heaven, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Christ gave that command to the church to baptize all those who would follow Christ in salvation. It was a command. He said, teach and baptize. Okay? So it's an essential part of the Great Commission, not just something that was thrown in. Christ gave us that command. Peter echoed this command in Acts chapter 2.38 when he preaches to the Jews at the beginning of the church age at Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And again, as I explained, you understand why baptism for them at that point was so important. In Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches to the Gentiles and sees them receive the Holy Ghost as they get saved. He's literally preaching and the Holy Ghost comes upon the Gentiles. And in verse 48 in chapter 10 of Acts, he says, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So Peter's just fulfilling what Christ told him to do. In Acts chapter 22, Paul is speaking to the Jews in the temple at Jerusalem, and he's recounting his testimony of how God saved him. He shares about going to Damascus after his conversion uh, in obedience to Christ's command, where he meets Ananias. And Ananias comes to him, And he heals his eyes, first of all, and then he looks at him, and this is Ananias' words in verse 16 of Acts 22. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sin, calling on the name of the Lord. So Paul got the command to be baptized, and he was. When we read earlier in in Acts chapter 9, Paul was baptized. Okay, so baptism is commanded as a demonstration of, of our true repentance from living for ourselves to commit ourselves to living the life that God has for us as we are in Christ. So it's commanded. That's the first reason why we should be baptized as believers. Second, because it's the purpose of God. 
If you go to Luke chapter 7 very quickly, we're going to wrap this up. But Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30. I'm just going to read it for you. It says, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees, in verse 30, and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. If you look in ESV or NASB, verse 30 is translated this way, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. God's purpose is for all men to repent. We read that through scripture. And the symbol outwardly of that is baptism. The Pharisees rejected that because they would not repent. So third, if we look in Scripture, there's a great precedent set in Scripture that all those who were saved in the New Testament church were also baptized. Now, you're not going to be able to follow along, but I want you to listen. I'm just going to go through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, this is just after Pentecost. Peter is done preaching, and it says in verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added to them, unto them about 3,000 souls. That's right at Pentecost. Acts chapter 8. Philip is in Samaria. Remember, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews, but Philip is in Samaria by the command of God. He's preaching to the Samarians, and it says in verse 12 of Acts chapter 8, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. The next verse in Acts chapter 8 talks about Simon the sorcerer. It says, then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Later in Acts chapter 8, we're still in Acts chapter 8, Philip is taken to meet the Ethiopian eunuch, and he preaches to him out of Isaiah in the chariot, and the eunuch is saved, and immediately the first thing the eunuch says is, what hinders me from being baptized? See, here is water. And he was immediately baptized. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, we read the story there, and just for time I'm not going to, but how he was converted and baptized by Ananias. I already referred to that. In Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches to Cornelius and other Gentiles, and they become saved and baptized immediately. In Acts chapter 16, we have the story of Lydia and her entire household, who are saved and immediately baptized Later in Acts chapter 16 is the story of the Philippian jailer who, in the middle of the night, there's an earthquake, the doors open, the chains fall off the prisoners. Paul and Silas are sitting there free. The Philippian jailer thinks everybody is gone and he's going to die, and he comes in and he says to Paul, what do I do to be saved? What was Paul's words to him? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And if you look at Acts chapter 16, verse 32, it says, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour and washed their stripes, talking about the jailer helping Paul, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. He believed and he was baptized. In Acts chapter 18, verse 8, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed. And were baptized. In Acts chapter 19, Paul meets several disciples of John the Baptist. Now here's an interesting one, because these are followers of John the Baptist. They had already been baptized by John the Baptist for repentance. But they didn't know anything about Jesus. They had no idea that he had come, that he had died. They had no idea what was going on. They just knew. John said, we need to repent. 
we do. We're sinners. We need to repent. So they got baptized. And so Paul meets them, and he starts telling them about Jesus Christ. And it says that they believed in Christ, and they were rebaptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So all through the history of the early church, we see this pattern of people being saved, and immediately they're baptized. Because it's that public profession that I am serious about this. I have given up my life to follow Christ. So baptism is not just important for us as believers. It's mandatory for us as believers. Baptism is given to us by God. It's commanded by God to be practiced by believers as a public testimony that we are truly members of the body of Christ. Okay? It is that public testimony. I will live for Christ and not for myself. I have died to myself. It's an act of obedience to our master, and it's a public testimony to others who our master has become. And it's a picture of Christ's death for our sin and of our death to our old life of sin. So there's a huge message in this ordinance of baptism. It is the substance, really, of the gospel. And God has given it to us in this symbolic form of baptism to show us the truth of who Jesus was, what he did for us, and what salvation really is. And so I pray that we never, as God's church, will devalue or neglect this beautiful symbol of the work of God that he does in saving us and in giving us a new life in Christ. It's easy for us because we don't face the persecution the early church did. But it's just as important for us to obey God in this matter. So I hope, if you are a professor of Christ, that you have followed the Lord in baptism. If you haven't, I'd be glad to talk to you and show you again from Scripture where God says this is important because it's a public testimony of your faith in Christ. Are you going to be one who is faithful to Christ no matter what it costs? Or will you be a Peter hanging out in the background so that nobody really knows who you are? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us instruction in this matter of baptism and the great picture that it shows of your death for us, the example that you gave us, and the righteousness that you established that we can have imputed to our account because of what you did, not just in your life but on the cross, in obedience to your Father. And so, Lord, help us now to live with an attitude of that same obedience, that whatever it costs us, we will follow you, we will obey you, Lord, we thank you again for the time we've had together. I pray that you will continue to be with us as you promised. Help us to always seek you diligently, to follow you without hesitation, without doubt, knowing that you will fulfill all promises that you have given us, that you will be with us. You will never leave us, even to the end of the age, and we'll trust you in this. And we love you and thank you now. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.
I'm not going to do it again. I want to be quitting. I don't know if I told you I'm going to be quitting Enterprise next month. I'll tell you what, it's just, I got arthritis in my shoulders. I'll tell you what, like Mondays and Saturdays, I come home, my shoulders are hurting so bad. I'll do it back and mopping and wiping the cars down. Like last Friday, I guess what would be before, I can my shoulder hurts so bad. I want to practice with my guitar for 15 minutes. I could just hurt so much I could quit. So I'm, I'm, I'm just tired of y'all. So I'll find something else. I'm 74. Yeah. But you know, those two months I was off, I wasn't working. My shoulders were fine. stand next to somebody in here and turn around. We had a coach one here with her. We were talking about the Chris Connection. Yeah, she goes there. 